Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. <clears throat> and John calling two of the disciples said, sent, sorry, John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Our great and glorious God, we praise you that according to your sovereign, sovereign plan, you have decreed that we would be here at this time in redemption history. Lord, that we would be children of the kingdom, seeing the blessings of the new covenant for ourselves. Lord, we praise you that we have been born at this particular time in history and that we are here in this particular moment to hear your word for us this morning. Lord, I'm confident that through your spirit you have decreed that you would accomplish your purpose in the hearts of your people. 
So I pray as we consider this passage together this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would help us to see and to understand not just who John is, but who Jesus is. And you would help us to see who we are in him. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Many people are concerned about their reputation. But a good reputation is not the measure of the man. A good reputation can be easily gained, and a good reputation can be easily lost as well. A good reputation can be gained by false means and lost in the same way. Many duplicitous people have had a good reputation, and many virtuous people a bad one through the fickle and foolish judgments of others. But rather than reputation, consider instead your character. William Hershey Davis, a Greek professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary during the early 20th century, wrote, Character is the one thing we make in this world and take with us into the next. The circumstances amid which you live determine your reputation. The truth you believe determines your character. Reputation is what you are supposed to be. Character is what you are. Reputation is what, is what you have when you come to a new community. Character is what you have when you go away. Reputation is built in a moment. Character is built in a lifetime. Reputation grows like a mushroom. Character grows like an oak. Your reputation is learned in an hour. Your character does not come to light for a year. A single newspaper report gives you your reputation. A life of toil gives you your character. Reputation makes you rich or makes you poor. Character makes you happy or makes you miserable. Reputation is what men say about you on your tombstone. Character is what angels say about you before the throne of God. Your character is what God knows you to be. Reputation is what men think you are. Both John the Baptist and Jesus had a reputation. They did then and they do now. It's important that you understand John the Baptist rightly because he was the forerunner who pointed to Jesus. But it is imperative that you know who Jesus is, that you understand Jesus rightly because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. Jesus had a reputation from what others heard about him. He had a reputation from what others assumed about him through their own presuppositions. The same is true today. People hear things about Jesus from the popular culture. People hear things about Jesus from popular preachers. And it seems that the unbiblical popular preachers far outweigh and outnumber the biblical ones. People hear things about Jesus from reading a few verses in the Bible. People hear things about Jesus and they draw conclusions. They form ideas about Jesus' reputation, but few know and understand his character. 
few have the discernment to ignore the caricatures from popular culture, let alone the discernment to discern who, are, who the preachers are who claim to proclaim the word of God. Fewer still take time to study God's word to really understand who Jesus actually is. Many know Jesus by reputation alone. They don't know him personally, and they have no idea about his character. Some even presume to sit in judgment, to sit on the bench in judgment of Jesus. But how most people view Jesus says more about them than it does about Jesus. I wonder, have you heard about Jesus from others? Maybe you've even read some of the Bible, but do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know his character? Well, we get some insight, don't we, when we look at the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist, as I mentioned earlier, was the forerunner of Jesus. Well, how does John the Baptist view Jesus? How does Jesus view himself? How does Jesus view John the Baptist? How do others view John the Baptist and Jesus? These are the questions we're going to be looking at as we explore Luke 7, 18 to 35 this morning. This passage reveals who John the Baptist is, and far more importantly, it reveals who Jesus is, but not by mere reputation. It does so by character. The three main sections in this passage. In verses 18 to 23, we have John the Baptist's assessment of Jesus. And in verses 24 to 28, we have Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist. And in verses 29 to 35, the people's assessment of John the Baptist and Jesus. So first of all, let's consider John the Baptist's assessment of Jesus. Verses 18 to 23. This passage doesn't begin with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. Now, we haven't heard from John for a while. Apart from a brief comment in chapter 5, we haven't actually heard anything directly from John since, since Luke chapter 3, where we're told that Herod had locked John up in prison because John had rebuked Herod for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. In the parallel passage, Matthew 11, verses 2 to 19, we find out that John was still in prison when he had heard about the deeds of Jesus. John was locked up in Machaeus, Herod's fortress on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea in what is now Jordan. But word came to John about what Jesus is doing. This passage is, is really linked with what we've just looked at in the first part of, of John chapter 7, where in the first verses 1 to 10, where Jesus healed the centurion's servant, and then in 11 to 17, where he raised the, the, the son of the widow of Nain. John's life is almost at an end. His mission in preparing the way for Jesus has been accomplished, but he hears about Jesus' ministry, and so he sends two of his disciples, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, we don't expect this kind of question from John, do we? After all, John has, has demonstrated his humility before the Lord, acknowledging that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, Luke 3.16. 
John had, de- had declared who Jesus was, saying specifically in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's going on? Well, that's John's question too. What's going on? Turn back with me for a moment to Luke chapter 3. John understood that his was the ministry of preparation for the ministry of Jesus. And he proclaimed that people must repent because the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that bears that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. And in verse 17, John said that, that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist expected Jesus to wield the axe and the winnowing fork. John expected Jesus to bring judgment. But Jesus is going around healing people. Jesus is is going around performing works of, of mercy. Jesus is even healing the servant of a centurion, a commander in the army of the enemies of Israel. And John didn't expect Jesus to do any of this. So he asks, is is somebody else going to bring the judgment? John wondered. John actually wondered whether Jesus was the coming one. John actually wondered whether Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Because Jesus' reputation did not line up with John's expectations. John didn't consider that there would be two incarnations of Christ. One when he came to proclaim and to live out the gospel, and then in his his return when he brings judgment. People reveal different characteristics in different circumstances, don't they? Consider John MacArthur for a moment. He's, He's got a reputation for being very harsh in the pulpit. But when you meet him or talk to him, or talk to somebody who knows him well, you find out that he's very different in person. He's very kind and gentle like a grandfather. Now he's the same man with the same character, but different circumstances call for different responses. Now I'm not comparing John MacArthur to Jesus. But we see here that there are different ways to respond in in different ways circumstances. In Jesus' first incarnation, again, this was a ministry of mercy, where he came to live and to die and to live again for the sins of his people. Jesus had a reputation of being gentle Jesus, meek and mild, like the children's prayer. Jesus was definitely meek, but most people don't understand what meekness is. Meekness is controlled strength, and no one ever had strength or controlled strength like Jesus had controlled strength. But one day, perhaps today, Jesus is going to return and he's going and people are going to be terrified at his presence. They're going, unbelievers are going to call on rocks and hills to, call, to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6:16. 6, so it wasn't Jesus' mission that was off, it was John's reasoning. 
But don't be too hard on John. It's not like you or I have never answered, asked a bonehead question. It's not like you or I have ever doubted Jesus. Besides, John had at least some excuse that, that you and I don't have. If John had lived just a few more years, he would have seen for himself. And we're going to see in a moment in verse 28 how Jesus makes a very important reference to the timing of John and his ministry in redemption. But Jesus' disciples go, sorry, John's disciples go to Jesus and faithfully communicate John's question. They say, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now there's no immediate answer from Jesus recorded. Jesus doesn't say, tell John not to worry. I've got it under control. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring judgment on the enemies of God. It appears that, that Jesus simply carries on doing what he has been doing. He heals people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits and bestows sight on many. Jesus responds by appealing not to his words, but his actions. Jesus demonstrated who he is. He demonstrates his character by what he declares. But now Jesus demonstrates who he is, his character, by what he does. Jesus corrects John, excuse me, John's faulty picture by continuing his ministry as he had before. He tells John's disciples to tell John what they've seen and heard. And he quotes Isaiah 61, the same passage that he had quoted when he began his ministry in Luke 4.18. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. John does Isaiah 61 and then quotes Isaiah 61. Note especially here that good news is preached to the poor. Remember that, that ministry to the, to the poor is a major focus in Luke's gospel account. You can't separate Jesus' ministry of, of mercy from, from what he is doing, though, in the, in the proclamation of the gospel. And this message should have been clear for John. John needed to recalibrate his expectations and not evaluate Jesus through the eyes of Jesus' reputation or through the eyes of his presuppositions. John needed to conform his thinking to the Word of God, not just part of the Word of God, but to all of the Word of God. Well, then in verse 23, Jesus proclaims a beatitude, a blessing. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. This is Jesus' message to John. In fact, as far as we know, this is Jesus' final message to John. Because the next thing we hear about John is, is he has been beheaded by Herod. Jesus is saying here that he himself is the correct object of faith. Anyone who is not offended by him is blessed. And there's obviously an application here for John, but not just for John. Anyone, including Luke's first readers and us, anyone who is not offended by Jesus is blessed. Now the word that's translated offended here comes from the Greek scandalizo, to, to cause someone to experience anger because of what has been said or done. You might recognize that, the word scandal. 
comes from that word. It clearly refer, refers to those who refuse to accept who Jesus is. So there's a caution here as well. Those who are offended by Jesus will not accept who Jesus is. The one who is offended by Jesus will not be blessed. This is implied here, but it's, it's going to become clear later on in this passage and through the rest of, of, John, of Luke's gospel account that there are two groups of people, only two. Disciples and everyone else. So then the question comes to you, are, are you a disciple or are you part of the everyone else? Who do you think Jesus is? Are you basing your understanding on hearsay? On, on Jesus' reputation, on, on half-truths from outsiders? Or are you basing your understanding of his character from the word of God? Do you have personal and direct knowledge of Jesus? Or are you offended by Jesus? And we have to admit that all of us, to a certain extent, are. Of course, none of us would, would say this directly. But other things in the word about Jesus that make you feel uncomfortable? Are you embarrassed to talk about Jesus to your neighbors or your, your friends or co-workers? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And if you do share the gospel with someone, do you hold back some of the more controversial elements? Or have you nailed your colors to the mast? Have you committed to stand with Jesus by his grace, no matter what doubts assail you, no matter what his enemies throw at you? Or are you offended by Jesus because of, of what you see going on in the world? You look at the racism and the riots, the persecution, the poverty, the sin, and the suffering, and you wonder why Jesus isn't doing something about it. Maybe you've even fallen into fear and doubt. If so, you're making the same mistake as John the Baptist. Every single sinful act will be dealt with at the return of Christ. Every single act, but not just every act, every word, every sinful thought will be dealt with at the return of Jesus Christ. As sin is punished either on the head of the unbeliever or has been transferred to the head of Jesus Christ. We died for the sins of his people. Furthermore, never assume that because you can't see Jesus doing something, that doesn't mean that he isn't doing something. God has plans and purposes in every single event, in every single life, in every single moment in every single life on the planet. And he is working all of it for his glory. For his glory. And for the good of his people. Now, I... I don't know, I can't see how the, the murder of a man at the, at the knee of a policeman, I can't see how God can bring good from that. I can't see how God can bring good and, and his glory from, from racism and from riots. But I look to God in his word. And I see who God is from his word. 
and have experienced God at His Word and have seen in my life and in the lives of, of many here how God has used horrific situations, even your own sin, for His glory and your good. Now, John at this point didn't understand that. To you. John's envoys go back to John with a message. And from Jesus' testimony about John that we're about to hear, and later on, it's, it's clear that John got the message. So now let's consider Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist, verses 24 to 28. Verse 24 with, with John's messengers gone, now Jesus turns to speak to the crowd about John. Jesus testifies to John the Baptist. Now, this is remarkable. Earlier, remember, John the Baptist had testified about Jesus, and now Jesus is testifying about John the Baptist. Jesus wasn't threatened by John the Baptist's query. He moves into a discussion about John's important role in redemption history. He turns to the crowd and asks them a series of questions. All of them are answered in the negative, or should be answered in the negative, except the last one. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John the Baptist is no mere reed, blown about by every wind of change. That's what makes his query about Jesus so shocking. But I trust also, in a sense, comforting. John, as strong as he was, was capable of stumbling, and like us, as a recipient of God's grace through the gospel. There is nothing spineless about John. Remember, he is in prison for challenging Herod for marrying his brother's wife. Well, that takes us to the next question in verse 25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So John wasn't taken in by, by comforts and kings. Yes, John's ministry would take him into a king's court, to Herod's court, but not as a courtier, but as a prisoner. John wasn't in king's courts. John was a voice in the wilderness. John's character and John's message was what drew people. But for some, they were only concerned about a, an external partial reputation. The people didn't go out into the wilderness to see a reed or an aristocrat. Well, what then did they go to see? This answer is in the affirmative, verses 26 and 27. A prophet and more than a prophet. Remember, in their last passage, the people had called Jesus a prophet. Now Jesus is applying that title to John. Jesus continues, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your, play, before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is here quoting Malachi 3.1, saying that it refers to John the Baptist. Remember that another of the key themes in Luke's gospel is the fulfillment of promise. John came as the fulfillment of God's promise in preparation for Jesus, the fulfillment of God's greatest promise. John's was a proclamation of preparation. John was preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. 
John was preparing the people as Gabriel promised in the angel Gabriel in Luke 1.17. He will go before him in the spirit of power and of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to make the disobedient to, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Remember what John said of Jesus in Luke 3.16. I baptize you with water, but he who is coming is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John preached repentance so that the people would be prepared for Jesus' arrival. And so Jesus is saying, John came to prepare you for me. Well, now in verse 28, we come to Jesus' highest praise for John. Jesus begins by saying, I tell you. When you see this introduction to a statement by Jesus in the scriptures, he's about to say something particularly important. Of course, everything that Jesus says, in fact, everything that's in the Bible is vitally important, but what Jesus is doing here is like putting an exclamation mark on what he's about to say. Matthew includes the words, the word amen, truly, I tell you. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now that is high praise indeed. Though John's faith wavered, Jesus still gives him the highest praise. Jesus is saying that John is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David. This is the highest praise from the highest source. Now if I say something good about someone, it might have some bearing. Earlier this week, Luke asked me to give him a reference for a job, and, and I was more than happy to do it. And I would have given Luke a glowing reference, but I suggested that Joshua would be a better reference, especially in the field of engineering. Well, I don't know if they called you, but Luke got the job. So this is high praise. This is the highest praise from the highest source. Take that to your job interview. But what is it that makes John so great? Well, in part, it's, it's because he was a prophet, a prophesied prophet. Malachi had prophesied about the prophet. So it's about, his, about the prophecies, but it's, it's about more than that. It's about who John prophesied, and it's about when John prophesied. The parallel passage in Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14, includes Jesus' statement, For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John... And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, verse 15, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. John was a bridge figure. John is a bridge between the Old and the New Covenants. Now, although John technically belonged to the Old Covenant, his mission was to announce the New Covenant. He saw things that other Old Testament prophets could only dream of. In 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets, about the, sorry, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So John prophesied about Jesus as Jesus was coming on the scene. John was the direct forerunner of Jesus. John didn't have all of the picture. He would be dead before the crucifixion. 
But John's greatness was ultimately in relation to Jesus because of his proximity to Jesus as the prophet directly before the coming of Jesus. Jesus continues, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I don't know about you, but I had wondered about, about that passage. Well, what does that mean? Is, is Jesus saying here that, that John's not in the kingdom? Well, clearly he's not saying that because in Luke 3.28, Jesus makes reference to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets who are in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying here is that, again, John came to announce the arrival of the new covenant, to inaugurate the kingdom with the arrival of Jesus. But again, he's still part of the old covenant. Now, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. John is not, Jesus is not saying here that John is not in the kingdom, but, but that he came before the kingdom had fully come. Now, in a sense, we're still waiting, aren't we? We're in the already, not yet. We're still waiting for the, the full consummation of the kingdom. But, but John lived just prior. Just prior to the inauguration of, king, of the kingdom in Jesus. So Jesus is talking here about the time of his ministry, the era in which he lived. As great as John was during his ministry, the least in the kingdom is greater, not because he's more powerful, not because he's more holy or any other personal characteristic. He's greater because he belongs to the time of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, consider what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that in this sense, John was great, but you are greater. You are greater than John the Baptist. Think of the privilege of living in the time in which you live. You, in God's providence, were born into this life. You were born again into new life under the new covenant. You know things that John didn't. Even the smallest, youngest child, the newest believer, knows more about Jesus than John the Baptist knew. John's greatness was in relation to Jesus. Your greatness is in relation to Jesus too. I said earlier that it's not your reputation that matters, but your character. Now that's true, but where does your character, where does real character come from? It comes from your relationship with Jesus. So then it's not your reputation that matters, but ultimately your reputation with Jesus that matters. It's not, a, it's not what others say about you, but what Jesus says about you. Has Christ's righteousness been credited to your account? What does God say about you? Again, it's, it's not what others think about you. People can be deceived. But what does the omniscient God say about you? Have you been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Does the omniscient God look at you and see Jesus? That's what it means 
That's what the imputation of righteousness means. It, it means that, that all of the good works that Jesus did, everything he said, everything he thought, everything he did is applied to the credit of his people. And if you have faith in Jesus, that's you. God looks at you and sees Jesus. And because he is transforming you and conforming you into the image of Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit, as you as you've been predestined to be, you, your character has changed. Now you don't measure up. None of us measure up. None of us come anywhere close to the character of Jesus. But by God's grace, we are moving inexorably towards that character through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does God say about you? There are only two groups of people in the world, two. And which group they're in has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with culture. It has nothing to do with language. It's all about your response to Jesus. So finally, let's consider the people's assessment of John the Baptist and Jesus versus 29 to 35. Not everyone shared Jesus' assessment of John. Luke includes here what seems to be a parenthetical comment in verses 29 and 30, summarizing how people responded to John's ministry. On the one hand, you have the people and the tax collectors who declared God just. They accepted John's baptism as pointing to their need for repentance. They responded in faith to God's plan of forgiveness and salvation. They're among those who turn to God as promised by Gabriel in Luke 1.16. But the Pharisees and lawyers, on the other hand, those who should have understood God's word, rejected God's plan. Their rejection of John's baptism means they rejected repentance and they rejected Jesus. Now God never forced anyone to reject Jesus. God never forced any, forces anyone to go to hell. Men follow their own fallen will. Men love their hatred and their pride and their sin, and they choose hell over the holy God. They rejected the gospel. They were hardened in their sin. What a warning. These were the externally righteous religious people. They were people who sought to obey God's rules, but they had no relationship with God. They only knew God by reputation, not by character, not by personal interaction. Well, who are today's Pharisees and lawyers? There are many even in the visible church who today make a great outward show of religion. They have a great reputation in their community and even in their churches. But they have no Christian character because they have no relationship with Christ. Their closed minds reveals their hard hearts. Again, what about you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is your religion just a bunch of external rules that you're trying to follow? If you're in the latter, it's very clear which group you belong to. Luke's statement here is really a comment on Luke 3, 1 to 18. All the people heard, but very few believed what, Jesus, what John said. 
So again, we're seeing the division between true disciples and everyone else. The division in Israel between believer and unbeliever is becoming clearer. And again, we're seeing the fulfillment of, the prophet, of Simeon's prophecy from Luke 2.34, that Jesus would be appointed for the rise and the fall of many. We're seeing the division between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. There are many even in the crowds who physically followed Jesus, but they did not spiritually follow Jesus. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus compares those who reject him like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus is saying that they're like spoiled brats, taunting other children. When we piped, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. That they're, again, they're spoiled brats trying to manipulate others. But Jesus and John would not allow themselves to be manipulated. They wouldn't play their games. And so the lawyers and the Pharisees and many, many in the crowds rejected them. But what did they claim as the basis for their rejection? When someone rejects the truth, you have to come up with an excuse as to why. They rejected John and Jesus, and they say it was for opposite reasons. Verse 33, for John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and, he said, and you say, he has a demon. John was, was an ascetic living in the wilderness and eating locusts and wild honey. Mark 1.6, he drank no wine. And, and so they said that the John is too extreme. They, they criticized his lifestyle. But it really wasn't John's lifestyle that was too extreme for them. It was his message. And so they wrote him off with an ad hominem logical fallacy. It means against, this means against the man. They didn't like the message, so they criticized the man. They did the same to Jesus, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, notice first how Jesus refers to himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Nabil Qureshi explains that, that we often don't understand what this term means, Son of Man. We, we think of, of Son of God as the more exalted term. But that, that title is actually applied to Adam and to Solomon. They are called Sons of God. But Son of Man is a divine title. You can see that in Daniel 7 and Revelation 3 and Revelation 20. So Jesus here is referring to his divine authority. He is saying, I have divine authority. I am the Son of Man. But they say, Jesus ate and drank. Interestingly, there's the dinner at the home of a Pharisee is going to be the central scene for our next passage. But they charged Jesus as a drunkard and a glutton. Now these are not light charges. Under, the, under Israel's civil law, they're, they're a capital offense that earned the death penalty. Deuteronomy 21, 20 and 21. They're saying that Jesus deserves the death penalty. They said it then and they're going to say it even more loudly later on. They say Jesus was a friend of sinners. They see that by branding others as sinners, they were condemning themselves. Right? Romans 2.1 Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges from passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
Now, if, if Jesus was only friends with one person, even if, if Jesus was just friends with John the Baptist, he'd still be a friend of sinners. And I, for one, am glad that Jesus is the friend of sinners because he's my friend. Is he your friend? The people who rejected John on the aforementioned grounds should have accepted Jesus. But they revealed the reality of their hearts. Another ad hominem argument. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's like saying to someone, well, I don't like you because you're too serious. And then saying to someone else, well, I don't like you because you're too joyful. They're spoiled brats. They're never satisfied. But the reality is those things were just an excuse. The rejection of God's messenger was the rejection of God. The rejection of God's son was the rejection of God. And in the last verse of our passage, verse 35, Jesus says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now this seems at first to be an, an odd statement because we think of, of justified as, as being pronounced not guilty, as being justified before God. And quickly, as an, as, again, as an aside, in, in James 2.21, we read that, that Abraham was justified by works. And, and many, using, considering the usual definition for the word justified, take this as evidence either against salvation by faith alone or as evidence against biblical inerrancy. But James there is using the sense that we see here in Luke chapter 7. The NIV says, wisdom is proved right by her children. You see that? Proved right. That's what the term justified means here. Wisdom is revealed in people's response. So is foolishness. Those who align themselves with John's message of repentance and turn to Jesus in faith are wise. Leon Moore says that those who are really wise, the children of wisdom, will pronounce right the right way, whether it be ascetic or social. They will see the wisdom of God in both John and Jesus. They will not walk in the critical ways of those who can never be pleased. What way are you walking in? What do you think of John the Baptist? What do you think of Jesus? Do you base your assessment on their reputation, how others view them? Either the rejection of the Pharisees, the, the caricature, or other things that, that you hear from people about John and Jesus? Or do you know their character because you know them from God's Word? Now, you can't know John the Baptist this side of glory. I would love to have a conversation with John the Baptist, even about the events of this passage. You can't know John the Baptist personally, but you can know Jesus personally. Do you know Jesus personally from God's Word? Do you know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior? If so, you are greater than John the Baptist because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, we praise you 
for the clear biblical testimony of who you are. We praise you for the testimony of John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus. And we praise you that even though John wavered, your grace was sufficient for him because your power is made perfect in weakness. And we thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater not just than John the Baptist's sin, but is greater than our sin. We praise you, Lord, for the way that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And we praise you for the way that you reveal yourself to us in our lives as we as we try to examine our lives in view of the gospel, in light of your word. And we praise you, God, that you are always faithful, even though we are not. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you lived the life that we have never lived. You obeyed your heavenly Father perfectly. You loved your heavenly Father perfectly with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we praise you, Lord, that your righteousness is credited to those who have faith in you. Lord, we have never obeyed as we should. Lord, our best deeds cause us to deserve hell for all of our righteousness as his filthy rags. Yet, Lord Jesus, you bore the guilt. You experienced fully the wrath of God for your people. And so we praise you for this great gospel. Lord, we praise you for the repentance and faith that you have granted us. Help us, Lord, to walk in repentance and faith. Help us to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus, to know you as you really are. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, in our hearts and the direction of your holy word.